Hi everyone and welcome to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. Whether you're a scientist or academic or not, I guarantee our discussion topic today will resonate with you because who hasn't experienced rejection in some form or another? Great discussion coming up on that with my main guest for today's episode, Dr. Elizabeth Carlin, as well as Alexis Roberts and Dr. Megan Petersdorf. Our paper in focus today digs into the weird and wonderful world of sperm morphology with Dr. Ariel Carl. First up though, I talk with Liz about her research on urbanization and getting pigeon research on SNL. That's up next on the WE podcast. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Carlin, a National Science Foundation and Living Earth Collaborative Postdoctoral Fellow at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Elizabeth, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll get into your research in a second, but I first wanted to ask what started your interest in science and and in research? I think I was always that kid that wanted to explore every puddle and poke my finger into every hole and pick up all the dead animals. <laughs> and I, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be a scientist. I remember science was always my favorite class in elementary school. And when I got to college, we had to declare our major before we entered. And I knew I wanted to be a biologist, but not a vet and not a doctor. And I, I struggled at the beginning. And then I took a field course. I got to go camping every weekend and go catch small mammals in this beautiful national forest in California. And it was one of those moments where I realized someone's going to pay me to be outside learning about nature. And this is what I want to do. So a major theme in your research is urbanization. Um, can you tell me what to, what what does that mean and why is it important and what, what got you interested in that? So urbanization is this movement of humans into congregated areas, cities, and we still within the field are kind of struggling because cities, while appearing very similar most of the time, can be very different. London is going to be very different than St. Louis, Missouri, where I am right now, but they're both urban spaces. So kind of thinking about that has been a big challenge within our field. And I ended up in this field because I had always had questions about how humans influence the environment. When I, when I first kind of had that experience of going out and catching mammals in this national forest, I was like, okay, I want to try living in the middle of nowhere. Let's try that. And that's for me. What ended up happening was I lived out in the middle of nowhere and hated it. (laughs) I didn't like being super far removed from my community. And so after that year, I moved back to the Bay Area and started to really ask questions Uh, in my head about how does urbanization, how does this thing that I love, these urban spaces where people are congregated, how does that influence wildlife? And ultimately, how can we better design cities so that they're supporting wildlife and humans? Hmm. So you you did your PhD at Fordham University uh, on the East Coast? 
Correct. In New York City, in the Bronx. Yeah, I guess that's a great place to study urbanization. <laughs> so your your thesis was on um, how urbanization affects the evolution of a bird that we're all familiar with, particularly in urban environments, the feral pigeon. Can you tell me about that project? Yeah. So when I got to my lab, I was the fourth PhD student that my advisor had taken on very rapidly. And I like to say that they got all the good animals. So one was working <laughs> on rats, one was working on coyotes, one was working on salamanders. So I kind of thought about what animal do we need to bring into this mix to be able to draw these broad conclusions about what urbanization is doing. So as you can tell, the lab was not taxa focus. We weren't focused on a specific species or group of species. We really wanted to broadly understand urbanization and how it influences all these different types of animals. And so pigeons kind of seemed like the most obvious answer. They were everywhere. I originally thought they would be super easy to catch. Uh, that turned out to be a little bit harder than I was suspecting. <laughs> and it just seemed like this great animal to ask questions about because they are everywhere. And, you know, Darwin was into pigeons. Like, here's this connection to our field of evolution. It kind of broadly brought the whole project together. So how does one catch a pigeon? <laughs> First, I tried a lot of things. So there are pigeon traps. And I tried setting these out on just the sidewalk. That's kind of difficult because in New York, people are just constantly walking. I then had the brilliant idea to put it on top of my car. That uh, didn't work very well because the pigeons didn't want to come over to the roof of my car. Finally, I found on the internet after searching what's called a net gun or a net cannon. And this is a thing that looks like a big flashlight but shoots out a net over a group of pigeons. And so I would kind of drive around until I saw pigeons. I'd throw some bird seed down on the ground and then use this net that shot out of this device to catch them. So once you had pigeon in hand or in net, <laughs> what sort of things were you, were you looking at? I would take a blood sample and that blood sample, we could look at glucose levels just with a little handheld uh, glucose monitor. Um, I would take that blood as well so I could bring it back to the lab to do DNA work on it. And then the bird would get a little ring around their ankle uh, that had a unique number. So I knew that I had already caught that pigeon. And it was always very fun to go back to a site and see pigeons that I had already caught kind of months later, years later. So I don't, I guess I don't know much about pigeon ecology or um, the kind of phylogenetic history of feral pigeons. Is the feral pigeon a bird that only exists in urban spaces? There is luckily a person at Oxford right now who is studying this. So his name is Will Smith. He is not the actor, but he is equally cool. And he is specifically looking at if there are any truly wild pigeons that still occur. So as a brief breakdown of pigeon history, pigeons were domesticated about five to 10,000 years ago. And they were originally domesticated as a food source. You could also use their, their feces as fertilizer. 
So we, we brought them into early human cities. And then as other poultry became more popular, there's a lot more meat on a chicken. The pigeons started to be bred for show traits. So things like feathered feet or a big head crest and the racing ability. So we've all heard of racing pigeons. There are heroes from world wars of these pigeons bringing messages back. Pigeons have an incredible homing ability where they can be released from an unknown location and fly back to the location where they were raised. That ability has kind of brought them into this world of fancy pigeons and pigeon racing. And so that's where we've kind of been more recently. I think less people are eating pigeons and more people are using them as this uh, hobby. Those pigeons, those hobby pigeons either are intentionally released uh, because people can no longer care for them or unintentionally released when they get out, they don't make it home. And then those kind of mix in and form these feral populations. So just to go back to um, the, I don't know if it's the title of your of your thesis, but the, the kind of core question, how has urbanization affected feral pigeon evolution? So I thought that pigeons were going to be very localized per city. So I conducted my research all across the northeast of the United States, from Boston down to Washington, D.C., And my hypothesis was that pigeons were really going to stay local to each of their cities, because why would you leave if you have food, if you have mates, if you have shelter? What I found was that pigeons from New York, which is about the middle, down to Washington, D.C., are one giant population. And then we found like a weird break across Connecticut. And then pigeons in Providence, Rhode Island, and Boston, Massachusetts were another population. And that really confused me for a while until I kind of thought about how suburban Connecticut is. And that maybe suburbanization and kind of more forests and people living on bigger pieces of property might actually be preventing pigeons from moving. And so if you go from New York all the way down to Washington, D.C., this is a very, very urbanized area. And the pigeons are treating it as one giant city. So I'm really excited to hopefully continue this work and move across the uh, West towards California and the United States to kind of see how often this pattern plays out and then look at other cities around the world where we kind of think our own geographic boundaries might have these these implications. Uh, Do they actually hold true or are there are the animals treating the the space very differently or viewing the space very differently Mm -hmm. than us? So this research, I also just want to quickly mention, had an unusual honour. It was featured on Saturday Night Live. Yes, I woke up because, of course, when Saturday Night Live is on, I'm asleep. (laughs) (laughs) And I woke up to a text message from one of my mentees who was just so thrilled because they were talking about my research. She knew it was mine. It was incredibly exciting. Uh, to have Michael Che have a joke about about my research on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> that has got to be, yeah, that's a career high point. 
I was. I woke up very <laughs> confused about if it was really true or if I was dreaming. I the whole thing kind of messed with my head in in a weird sense because it was never something that I had imagined. Yeah, that's it's kind of unlocked a new goal for for scientists. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so your your current postdoc work expands on this urbanization theme. Um, what are you working on now? So I've just moved to St. Louis, Missouri, which is in the middle of the United States, located on the Mississippi River. St. Louis has a strong history of kind of land politics, and like most cities in the United States. One of the things that I was very curious about and one of the things that the field of urban evolution and ecology has really been calling upon its researchers is to incorporate this land history into our research. Thinking about how we've historically used the land and what that might mean for the wildlife population. And in St. Louis, this is really focused around race. St. Louis is a heavily segregated city it's segregated along a single street where north of that city is mostly black, the black population of the city, and south of that street is the white population. This is been codified in law for a very long time where you couldn't sell your house to someone of a different race. Additionally, the city was investing less money in certain parts, typically the black neighborhoods. They weren't putting in parks or remediating the land after a factory moved out. There's much more factories in that north part of the city that you can imagine are putting pollutants into the air, into the ground. And so I'm using squirrels, the eastern gray squirrel, which is native to this area, to kind of figure out how might those land practices shape this, this squirrel population through a process called landscape genetics, where we're relating environmental factors to how these squirrel genes are moving through the environment. So in addition to kind of taking landscape data, I'm collecting DNA, I'm collecting fecal samples so that I can work with a friend, Bianca Brown, Dr. Bianca Brown at Yale to look at the microbiomes of these different squirrels living in different parts of the city. I test their blood glucose levels. Um, and so really kind of trying to figure out how might this land practice over time influence. And it will be really interesting to see if socioeconomics has this influence on, on where the squirrels are, how they're moving through the environment. Yeah. So on your website, this, this was termed environmental racism. Would you mind just giving us a quick definition of what you mean by that? Yeah. So environmental racism is the perpetual lack of inclusion of people of color into the policymaking and um, kind of development of land. And this is kind of been going on for a very long time where cities will often not include the local population when they're making decisions about the land. And this term is kind of encompassing that, that history of not including these people and what their needs may be or what their desires may be um, in that land history. Mm. 
So you've made the switch from pigeons to squirrels. Uh, how, how do you catch a squirrel? <laughs> is that is it easier than than pigeon pigeon so, chasing? Uh, I struggled with this also for a while. Uh, I I wasn't quite sure how I was going to catch these squirrels if I was going to use the net gun again, and I ended up ordering a bunch of squirrel traps and have been setting these up by dumpsters. And St. Louis is full of alleyways and the squirrels are moving into those dumpsters. They're chewing on the plastic lids. And if you have a keen eye, you can kind of drive down these alleyways and see these squirrels moving in and out of these dumpsters. So I've been setting up my squirrel traps right next to dumpsters and baiting them with a little bit of peanut butter and walnuts. And it's been incredibly successful so far, at least in the urban parts of the city. I used to catch a lot of fence lizards um, in the south on trash cans, you know, rubbish bins, because it, it's a nice perch for them. They can sit and bask there. So I'm quite relieved to hear that I'm not the only scientist whose field work kind of revolves around <laughs> garbage. <laughs> it always, whenever I'm in this these alleyways, I'm always thinking like, don't look suspicious because <laughs> I'm crouched down, uh, you know, next to a dumpster, setting down a trap or looking for squirrel poop, which, you know, blends into the asphalt very easily. And uh, I think I must be a very weird sight for many people to come upon. <laughs> it's a glamorous, glamorous yeah. life. Yeah. Well, it's been great to hear about your projects and you're going to stick around for our roundtable discussion. So we'll be right back with that. For today's paper in focus, we are dipping into the worlds of reproductive physiology and sexual selection to talk about how fertilization mode drives sperm length evolution across the tree of life. I'm joined by the lead author on a new paper in Nature Ecology and Evolution, evolutionary biologist, Dr. Ariel Carl. Thanks for being here, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me, Kirsty. Uh, so you're you're currently a postdoc up in Stockholm studying mm -hmm. sperm evolution, which we'll talk about today. But sperm morphology is a long-standing interest for you, I guess. Um, can you tell us briefly how you got into this topic? Sure, it's kind of a long story, I guess. I was an undergraduate at uh, Oberlin College as doing a senior thesis project looking at um, how invasive crayfish um, become invasive. And one of the things we thought was maybe they hybridize with the native populations. And, and so that got me reading more about, uh, about sperm competition and how, how could a species that is non-native outcompete um, a native species like in sperm competition mechanisms. So I started reading about those. Uh, I think I read a, a book by um, Tim Burkhead called Promiscuity, which I now make some of my students read. That was one of the topics that I wanted to do my PhD on. And and I convinced my PhD advisor that he should study sperm in lizards, even though that's not what he studies. So, and I, yeah, been hooked ever since. It's been great. So in case people aren't familiar with the idea of sperm competition and are now yes. visualizing, well, I don't know what they'd be visualizing, but do you want to, can you give us a bit of a primer on sperm competition? Sure. When we think about sexual selection as a big umbrella, we've got selection before mating and selection after mating. And sperm competition is when males ejaculates are competing against one another for fertilization. And there are other mechanisms like 
cryptic female choice where females can bias the paternity of her eggs to one male or another. It's called cryptic female choice because it's within the female's reproductive tract and we can't really see what's going on as easily. So those two mechanisms are kind of the um, under the umbrella of post-copulatory selection. So this new paper takes a comparative approach looking across all species to try and understand the diversity of sperm morphology. Can you tell us a bit more about sperm diversity? Yeah, so I think a lot of people don't um, realize how diverse sperm are because, you know, if you picture in your mind a sperm, probably what you think of is something that looks a little bit like a tadpole, right? You are right in thinking that maybe the the general form is, is similar, but I think what is really surprising when you look at what sperm looks like across all animals, they range from two micrometers in length to six centimeters in length. Uh, It's a huge variation in just one axis of variation total length. Um, There's also all kinds of crazy other morphological variants in what sperm look like. My favorite is maybe the one that looks like an upside down umbrella. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of different ways that uh, uh, males produce sperm and make all kinds of different shapes and sizes. So what were your aims in this paper in in terms of trying to unpick this this diversity? There have been a lot of people who have studied the evolution of sperm, um, but most of these studies have looked at sperm evolution within a taxonomic group. Uh, And we didn't really have the ability to look across all of animals until recently because we didn't have a good phylogeny for all of animals. We also didn't really have a good sense of some of the major drivers of sperm evolution on a with this a broad scale. Um, there was some evidence from um, actually a Swedish researcher named Oka Franzen. He looked at some marine invertebrates and noticed that the ones that have internal fertilization had kind of different looking sperm than the ones that had external fertilization. But this was only a single observation and it wasn't actually really even tested. And it, but it's kind of that idea has stuck in the literature for a little while. So when I say internal fertilizers, I mean species like humans, where sperm is directly transferred to the female and external fertilizers are like fish or sea urchins, where they release their sperm into the water. And so we wanted to see whether across all animals that there was a big difference in the way that sperm evolve between fertilization modes. So this paper also introduced me to a new fertilization mode that I hadn't been aware of before, (laughs) which is called sperm casting, which sounds like uh, lots of fun. (laughs) So can you tell us what sperm casting is? Yes, these are um, species where they kind of are almost a intermediate between internal and external fertilizers uh, in that males of sperm casters release their sperm into the water and females filter the sperm out from the water and then can use it uh, to fertilize their eggs internally and sometimes store it for a while and fertilize later. So what were the main results of the paper then? Yeah, so we found that kind of like what uh, Oka Franz and this Swedish researcher noticed was that um, the sperm of internal fertilizers is larger than the sperm of external fertilizers. And we think part of that reason is because uh, if you think about what happens for species that release their gametes into the water, they immediately become diluted. And so in order for the the sperm to be able to um, fertilize eggs and combat these dilution effects, they may need to make a lot of sperm. 
And so species that have these dilution effects like external fertilizers and sperm casters have smaller sperm in, across the, the board. Whether we look at all species, whether we break them down by phyla that have internal and external fertilizers, we find that internal fertilizers always, always have larger sperm than external fertilizers and sperm casters. So that was one of our main findings. We also found that internal fertilizers have faster evolving sperm. And we think that this is because uh, the reproductive tract of internal fertilizers is really, really different across all species. So um, the female reproductive tract is, uh, because it's like almost a different environment in every single species, sperm are co-evolving with the female reproductive tract with the female sperm storage organs, with the complex biochemistry. And so it's driving sperm to, to um, evolve in many different directions. And so we see faster rates of evolution in internal fertilizers um, and in sperm casters who have this interaction between sperm and the female reproductive tract once it reaches the female. So one other um, thing I picked up on that I thought was cool. <laughs> um, am I right in my interpretation that body size or I guess like animal size does not necessarily predict sperm length? It doesn't necessarily predict sperm length, but there is this interesting kind of interaction. So we, if you remember, I mentioned that external fertilizers experience the strong dilution effect. When we look at internal fertilizers, we think that actually there is there are some dilution effects that occur as body size gets larger. And so, um, because you can imagine that when you are comparing the size of a female reproductive tract in a fruit fly versus a cow, that the reproductive tract size is really, really different. So when we get to these big or larger body size, especially in mammals, there are some dilution effects, even in internal fertilizers in those species. And we actually find that as species get larger um, for internal fertilizers, their sperm are a little bit smaller. That's super cool. So if anyone out there is like me thinking, uh, wow, sperm are amazing and I should do some work on this, uh, you actually have a huge open access sperm morphology database now. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes. So we have a database called spermtree.org. The data from this paper is housed there currently, and we just um, had another paper accepted um, to scientific data that is the full expanded data set. And so that data set includes, um, I think, 5,600 different descriptions and just over 4,700 species. And this has a full data set of the, the fertilization mode that we have in this paper, but also the sperm head, mid-piece, flagellum length. So these are the different parts of the cell as well as sperm total length. We hope that the that sperm tree can be a living database where we are constantly adding new papers and keep and adding new data for people to um, do research on sperm evolution. So what's next for you in terms of research? Yeah, so uh, I'm gonna be starting a faculty position at Hamilton College in the fall and um, I am going to hopefully start work on amphibian sperm evolution because one of the groups that we noticed in this paper that is uh, very strange and doesn't quite fit the mold of, of the general um, patterns that we see are amphibians. And, and it's partially because external fertilizers we noticed in that group, um, so mostly those are mostly frogs have much more diverse sperm um, and have faster evolving sperm than most other external fertilizers. And it, uh, we realized that, that this is because there are many external fertilizing frogs that have 
really, really variable environments where they fertilize their eggs. So some of them fertilize eggs in water that would like most other external fertilizers, but some make foam nests where the, that surround the eggs. Some fertilize eggs on land, some on the female's back, sometimes on leaves. So all of these different environments really change the, um, the kind of like the, you can even think of the viscosity of the environment where sperm are trying to function. So I want to kind of understand that um, at a more detailed level. So that's what my lab will be working on. That sounds fascinating. Well, please come back sometime and fill us in on how amphibians being weird influences sperm evolution. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. I'd be very happy to. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Ariel, and congratulations on the paper. Um, And we will have links to the paper and sperm tree um, in the episode note. Thanks. Welcome back to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. I'm back with Dr. Elizabeth Carlin, and we are joined today by Alexis Roberts, a PhD candidate at the University of California in Davis, and by Dr. Megan Petersdorf, a lecturer in evolutionary anthropology at Durham University in the UK. Welcome all, and thanks for being on the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to it's great to see you all. Um, Alexis, I'll start with you. Can you tell us a bit about your PhD project? Absolutely. So I am a fifth year student uh, in the population biology graduate group, and I'm in Peter Wainwright's lab at UC Davis. Um, I study functional morphology and comparative methods in fishes. Specifically, I look at how major morphological changes uh, within fish feeding systems, so the oral jaws, and then fishes actually have a second set of jaws called the pharyngeal jaws in their throat. I study how major changes in those feeding systems affect the evolutionary dynamics as well as kinematics or movement uh, within those systems. I was looking at a paper that you put out last year and realizing yeah. that fish feeding morphology is way more complicated than I had ever thought. <laughs> It's crazy. What is that second set of jaws about? What's going on there? Yes. (laughs) So the oral jaws do a lot of the work in terms of prey capture. So when you're thinking about uh, like the way that we eat and we like bite on things, we bite things from a fork or from like a slice of pizza or an apple or whatever, fishes are using their oral jaws to capture their prey items, whether they are kind of Uh, flinging their jaws forward to suck in prey items or they're they have some have beaks and they're like scraping corals and collecting algae off things but then they have pharyngeal jaws so as you kind of travel towards the back of the mouth and closer to the stomach it's kind of like right in between there's a second set of jaws that basically crush grind uh, mash up whatever has been eaten and then you know that food goes to the stomach, but that's where the chewing occurs uh, right. in, in fishes. And are you looking at a particular group of fish or are you comparing these morphologies across a whole range? Yeah, so in my first chapter, I look at pony fishes, uh, which is this uh, family of fishes in the Indo-Pacific Ocean. Um, and they basically have a lot of differentiation in 
the way that they protrude their oral jaws. Um, so we kind of looked at what anatomical aspect is changing for them to actually have differences in the direction of their protrusion. Because you know, like some fish they open up like with their with their mouths opening forward, and these ones open where their some of their mouths open upwards and some open downwards. And then in my last few chapters, I'm looking at uh, a major change in the pharyngeal jaws that allows fishes to eat harder, tougher, chewier prey. Um, and so for that, I'm looking at cichlids, which are a very charismatic and well-studied group of fishes. Um, I'm specifically looking at neotropical cichlids and comparing them to North American sunfishes um, as my non-pharyngognathus species. And then as I move on into my last chapter, I'm, I'm looking like, at fishes across like a major radiation. That is super fascinating. Can I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What got you into fishes? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So growing up, I, I wanted to be a marine biologist, but I like I didn't really know what that meant. I thought I was going to be like a trainer at SeaWorld or something. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> I ended up doing a research experience for undergraduates at Friday Harbor Labs. Um, I, at the time, I was interested in like bioacoustics and thinking about sounds that whales and dolphins and other animals like that that they make to communicate and the the research experience that I was doing was more focused on comparative anatomy um, and so I ended up doing some of that and I talked to some people that did bioacoustics and I was like no anatomy is where it's at I want to tear these fishes apart I want to see what's going on <laughs> inside it just yeah <laughs> so that's how that started for me Megan, you have quite recently finished your PhD. Yes. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so tell us, tell us about that project and then what, what you're up to now. Yeah, so I'm interested um, generally in the evolution of mating system diversity. So sort of how different reproductive strategies can evolve in really closely related species. So I looked at this by looking at baboons and specifically I looked at kinder baboons, which are a comparatively less well-known species of baboon that lives in Central Africa. Um, so in my dissertation, I worked on characterizing certain aspects of their mating system and then focused on female reproductive strategies um, to, excuse me, specifically to um, look at sexual signals to see if the evolution of female sexual signals evolved to, to confuse males about the timing of when they're fertile and if that kind of helps females regain control of reproduction. So what kind of sexual signals were you looking at? All types. So vocalizations, they sometimes make a vocalization when they mate and then also behaviors like perceptive behaviors. So presenting the hindquarters to males. Um, but probably the major signal that I was looking at is called the sexual swelling, which is the um, sexual skin that swells up uh, across the menstrual cycle. And you see this in a lot of um, baboons and macaques and chimpanzees. And, and what's interesting is that 
while we see that it increases in size generally across the cycle, that it's sort of biggest when a female is at her most fertile, there's actually a lot of variation in whether or not this is true. So some females will stay really big for a long time. Um, some will get at their biggest right before, right after they're the most fertile. So I'm interested in um, sort of why we see this variation in the timing of the signal being mismatched from um, the timing of fertility. Isn't that sort of not beneficial to be advertising when you're not fertile or or is that the the, the idea is that it actually isn't maybe necessarily tied to advertisement yeah so the the general idea of like the kind of overarching hypothesis that people think for why this signal evolved is that it's relatively accurate so that when you're at your most fertile you're at your largest and males are able to potentially interpret the signal and allocate their mating effort at the time where there would be the highest likelihood of conception. But by advertising a smaller signal at other times of the cycle, you're mating with other males potentially, which would increase paternity confusion. So you're at Durham University now. Um, yes. Are you, you're, you're teaching and yeah, so this position is a mixture of both teaching and research. So last term I did a lot of teaching um, and this term I'm not doing any teaching actually. And I'm going back to the field soon to um, sort of work on our project in Zambia um, and then able to come back and, and get to fellowship and job applications and working on my PhD papers. <laughs> So today we're going to talk about something that I think we all have a lot of experience of, kind of an unavoidable part of academic and research life, um, and that is rejection. So whether it's journals turning down your papers or not getting into grad programs, being passed over for jobs and grants, etc. Hearing no is just part of the process, but figuring out how to deal with that can be a really steep learning curve. So I'll start by just opening up the floor to you all. Uh, what has your personal experiences been of rejection as part of your careers? Liz, I'll start with you. Yeah, uh, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of rejection. I don't know how prepared I was for that coming into academia. I think a lot of us in academia are overachievers and have been like that most of our lives. And so all of a sudden kind of getting into this group of overachievers means that not everybody's going to get <laughs> get the grant or get the job. And it's been learning how to change my mindset towards rejection. Even when I'm applying for something, saying, I'm going to put my best foot forward and I just want to make it really difficult for that selection committee to have to choose who's going to get this grant or get this job. Yeah, I think I, I agree with all of that. I kind of think of rejection and, and failure in the same light. I, I was having a conversation just the other day um, about this sort of thing because so often uh, we feel rejected or we feel like we failed because we're comparing ourselves to how quickly someone else is moving through the process or how well they seem to be moving through that process. And I was just like, I think we need to readjust and shift our views of what success looks like. Because it doesn't have to mean that we get through a PhD in four years. Uh, it doesn't have to mean that you get every paper back with minor revisions or that you pass that like big exam the first time. Like as long as it happened at some point and you grew from that experience, you are fine. Like you succeeded. Mm. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a really sensitive person. And so when thinking about this topic and like, how do we deal with rejection? I don't think I deal with it well. <laughs> I think over <laughs> the years, like, like at all, I'll be honest. Um, over the years, I've gotten better at trying to reframe it and understand it, like Alexis said, and, and work through it. And, and I think it is really tied up in, in failure and comparison and, and being an overachiever, like Liz said. And I think that's that's a really hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, especially when you get to graduate school, because we were you know the, the best in our classes, which is why we got there. And then suddenly we aren't. And the thing is, is that's okay. Like the, it, you shouldn't doing that. Like everybody's good at different things. And I think that's something that I've had to work on understanding and appreciating is that rejection can get tied up in comparison, but often the comparisons we make aren't fair. The other thing I, I really struggle with, with rejection is not taking it personally, um, which I take it very personally. <laughs> so, but I'm working on it you know, my, my therapist has helped me a lot with this in the sense of, you know, in a basic example, what if someone doesn't like your poster at a conference? It doesn't mean they don't like you, you know, or like if you don't get a grant that your ideas are bad or you're bad, you know, so trying to separate the work from yourself is helpful. And, and going through that with, with jobs as well, it can feel like, why didn't I get that job? And really, maybe I wasn't a good fit, but it's hard not to feel like, wow, they hate me and, and then mm. just spiral and yeah. So Megan mentioned earlier that she does not respond well to rejection, which I think is, you know, pretty normal. Um, Alexis and Liz, what are your instinctual responses to rejection? And um, for everyone, has how you deal with getting a paper rejected or not getting a grant or something like that, has it changed over time? I've been getting, giving myself a reward for even just applying. You applied for the job, like you get to buy dinosaur sheets. You, <laughs> you got rejected, you get to buy a Lego set. Maybe I'll go out and, you know, get a cupcake or go get my nails done, but do something to treat myself, to acknowledge you worked really hard on this. It's okay that you didn't get it. And there's some other fit out there. I really like that. Yeah. What a great mindset. <laughs> I got, I like the idea of like, okay, you get a treat, like choose something that you really like just to sort of lift your spirits, get your mind off of it. I like that idea. Yeah. I need to do that more. I did that. My first like big grant rejection I got in grad school, I bought this like artwork that I really wanted. Um, and I feel like that was really nice because then I had it up in my office and it was just a really always a good reminder. Like I kept being like, I celebrated this loss and I got to look at it every day and think about that, which you would think would make you depressed. But it actually made me feel good that that's what I did when I got rejection, because that was probably one of the harder rejections I got just because it was earlier on in my career. And it was like the first big thing that I'd really worked on and put forward. And I'm glad I got that. And I feel like that kept me going throughout a lot of parts of grad school. And I, I should do that more. So when you, when you guys get a, a paper rejection, do you read through the comments? Uh, do you get, you know, <laughs> angry and worked up? <laughs> I tend to, if I get a paper rejected, I'll, I won't read the comments and I'll maybe come back to them after a couple of weeks and t 
to kind of get past that initial taking it personally? Do any of you have kind of strategies for, for that? I feel really similarly. Honestly, whenever you get reviews back, like I like to see the decision, but then if I know that it's going to upset me, I'm just like, I need to come back to this. I, I, I come back to it. And I, I do that with a lot of different things. Um, one of the, the biggest, the hardest things I had to deal with during grad school, um, in my first year, we take this big comprehensive written exam. Um, we have all these modules throughout the year. And at the end of the year, we took uh, an exam for each of those modules. So in my case, nine uh, in two days, nine exams in two days. And you, <laughs> it's a lot. You have, you can only not pass one module. Um, and I ended up not passing two. One of them definitely shouldn't have passed. But then there was another one where I had only not passed by a couple points. And they set that pass fail at like 80%. And I wanted to get it over and done with, but I ended up just taking the entire summer like part of the summer, I just forgot about it. I went and did some work up at Friday Harbor again. I went on a vacation with my family. And then months later, I came back and I retook the exams and I did incredible. Um, but sometimes you just you need to take that step back. Yeah. Alexis, one of the things that you brought up was this kind of idea of failure. And I wanted to touch on that just because... I think we fail a lot in academia. I think our experiments don't work. Things don't work out. You don't get the grant. That feels like a big failure. I failed classes in undergrad. Like I promptly signed up for chemistry and biology my first quarter of undergrad and promptly <laughs> failed. I got a D in biology and an F in chemistry. And I feel like it's very important that we, A, share those failures so that we normalize. This is okay. You can still go on and get a PhD. I think we're often told, don't quit, you know, keep trying, keep trying. And I think back to this one experiment that I tried and tried and tried to get right. And it just wasn't working. What I ended up realizing was that I should have quit sooner. And that's almost advice that we never get. Yeah. But it was kind of, I needed to quit sooner and refocus because this question wasn't going to be answered right now. And I think about that in terms of academia, when you're applying for jobs and you just keep getting rejected, like maybe I need to think about other types of jobs that might be suitable for me or moving to the UK or moving to Europe or moving someplace else where, you know, maybe I hadn't even pictured myself. So kind of flipping the idea of, of quitting and having it be a good thing mm. because you're able to pivot to something else and invest your time in something yeah. else. I've only just come off the job market, but had experienced like just, I'd applied for countless jobs basically. And, and there was a, a period where I knew my fellowship was coming to an end and I was putting a lot of energy into job materials. And it's, it's really time consuming and I just wasn't getting anywhere and I kind of took you know the the advice that you were saying Liz that it, it just I, I had to take a step back and think this is obviously telling me something like my I know my materials are as good as they can be but there's something else that's missing here and 
perhaps what I need to do is not put the time into applying right now and instead focus on you know, finishing up those three or four papers that have been sitting on my desk that I haven't been getting to and, you know, that's going to maybe fill a gap or something on my CV and that's what's going to help. And I'm not sure that it did, but it was definitely good for my mental health to just be like, you know what, I'm actually just not going to apply for stuff for another few months. You know, luckily for me, it wouldn't mean the difference of being able to afford to live if I didn't have a job exactly lined up. Um, so I was able to do that. And I think that was, that was really good. Yeah. I think sometimes we need, we need the space to do that. But like you said, it's not always mm. possible with financials. Not, it's something that I, yeah, like I struggle with thinking like sometimes I just wish I had a chance to breathe and think about what, what direction do I want to go? Like whether it's within academia, like what direction of research do I want to go? Or do I want to think about, non-academic things, but I don't really have the financial security to do that. And that, that is a challenge that I'm trying to navigate. But sometimes I, I agree, you need to at least just change your focus because you're just like hitting the same nail over and over and, you know, you need to just do something else and come back. And in a smaller level to answer Liz's question, I, I sometimes get into this with analyses. Like when I was planning out my dissertation, I was really stuck on this one thing thing I wanted to do in this one chapter. And I just didn't have the statistical chops to to do it. Or I probably did if I had more time, but you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't have the time to figure out how to do this thing. And eventually you just have to like cut your losses and like, you know, do a chi-squared test and like move on. Sometimes I'm like, wow, I wasted so much time reading about statistics and I didn't get anywhere. But I don't know, like, is it time lost or did I learn something? I think something um, that Chrissy, you kind of touched on um, that I'm really trying to do right now, um, instead of thinking about everything that I want to do or that I'm trying to accomplish, like, I just want to focus on what's right in front of me. Um, Like, so often, something that I'm getting wrapped up in a lot right now is like, where do I want to go next? And I've been getting very stressed because I'm, I'm nearing the end of my PhD, but I'm like, Alexis, if you stress about this so much, you're not even going to get finish the PhD. So then it's not going to matter. Um, <laughs> so um, sometimes taking a step back and being like, okay, let me, let me focus on this project. Let me focus on this analysis. It may not be what I need to, what needs to happen big picture, but like, it's a step. So was rejection something that you felt uh, prepared to deal with as an early career researcher? Liz, I think you said no. (laughs) Um, If you had had some preparation or, you know, a mentor helped you to prepare for that, what, what helped? I think kind of one of the first things that always hurt me when I would get just drafts back from my advisor that were completely read. When I sat down with my undergrad mentee one time when we were working on uh, an application for her, I first showed her, I was like, I just want you to know this is what my draft looks like coming back from my advisor. It's completely read. That's normal. Second, I want you to know that when I give you something and it's all marked up, it's because I care about it so much that I took all this time to invest in how we're going to shape this narrative and change this narrative. It is in no way a comment on you or your writing. 
And so I think, I hope that that has been helpful. I definitely learned a lot through my PhD advisor. And I agree. I think the first time I got feedback on something I wrote and it was all red, I I burst into tears. You know, I was like, he hates it. It's just like, it's not about feelings, but, and, you know, mostly the comments are, are helpful. Um, and it's, it's so tiered, right? Like I, I can see people that I mentor going through that and I feel capable of giving them good advice on how to contextualize it. And yet I still struggle too. And, you know, I think it's something we just improve with over time and, and seeing that happen has helped me, like seeing me feeling able to give younger people advice, um, that is hopefully helpful has helped me feel more confident as Liz was saying in, in what has, is happening to me that I somehow can't take myself out of. Like Liz was saying, you, you need to be honest and just like sensitive to your mentee's feelings um, about this because they, they're learning, they're new, they don't know that this is literally just a part of the process. Um, but then also as the mentee, I think we can't suffer in silence. Like we are not going to learn how to deal with these feelings until we tell someone, like tell our advisor, hey, I need a pep talk because this really, this really messed me up. Or, you know, go to your lab mates and the postdocs and just friends outside of the lab and be like, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Being able to get around people that just want to see you succeed, that that makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I also think it's really important to feel what you're feeling. So it's like we can intellectualize that like rejection is normal and this and that. But the more I think we push that on people, the more that people, when they are rejected by something and they're hurt, they get mad that they shouldn't be feeling upset by it. And it's also okay to be upset by rejection. And it's better to just feel that and work through that and then come back to it after you've worked through those feelings. Cause I, I see a lot of that where people are like, I'm really upset, but I know I shouldn't Mm. be. And like, I know it's normal and this and that, and you're intellectualizing your feelings. And again, this is another shout out to my amazing therapist where it's like, don't intellectualize or judge your feelings, just feel them. And like, it's also okay to be upset and mad about rejection. Don't be mad that you're, you have feelings. We're humans. I think Alexis also brought up a really good point about self-advocacy and learning about what you need. One of the best things that one of a, one of my friends taught me early on in grad school is, you know, the kind of crap sandwich of how you get feedback, which is what I told my advisor I always need. I said, I need you to tell me something good. You can criticize me all you want in the middle and then end up with something really good and positive. And he really did a phenomenal job of taking that to heart when he was giving me feedback. And that's partly because he was such a good mentor to me. But I think that kind of self-advocacy about what you need in those moments of rejection is, is very helpful. That's one of the biggest lessons I learned is asking for what you need, but that is the second step. The first step is figuring out what you need. And I think that can be really challenging to figure out what type of mentorship you need, what type of response you need, because everyone responds to different things. Some people do respond well to like tough love. I absolutely do not, you know, so (laughs) I'm like, please tell me I did a great job. Like maybe it's the American in me, but I'm just like, I need to be told I'm 
I'm special <laughs> in some tiny way. But it's really hard to figure out what what it is that you you do need, you know, and and maybe what you need when you get rejected is not advice actually right away is just space to yeah to mourn yeah to, yeah to mourn and feel and, and just be like listened to like you know like maybe you do need to just vent without someone trying to fix it let's finish up with some if we could just throw out some good advice for coping with rejection um whether it's buying dinosaur sheets or treating yourself to a cupcake anything anything you you'd like to share about um just some coping strategies that we can boil down from all the great stuff that we've already said Alexis what are you watching on tv when you get rejected I just go I go through so many different shows I don't just something that like makes you laugh um, something that allows you to relax. The other thing that I really like doing is just hanging out with my friends or my family or my partner, like have a game night, just go, you know, yell, scream, eat some great food and, and laugh. Yeah. I would say the same thing. Like don't try to solve the problems because usually rejection comes with some form of how to fix it. Right. If we're thinking of papers and things like that. Not always jobs don't tell you how to fix yourself, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think completely disconnect, feel what you need to feel and go spend time with people. I- I'm an extrovert, so I can appreciate that. Maybe this isn't, that's not helpful for everybody, but I think being alone makes me more depressed when I have a rejection and kind of just going to see someone that I have fun with is, is better. And, and just trying to like, not push it away, but just lean into what brings you joy. You need to be in community. Like there's no way to make it through any of this without a support system. Yeah, get a friend with a dog too. (laughs) (laughs) Dog park makes me kind of forget all my thing, all the things that I'm worrying about, all the rejection and watching the dogs play, watching my dog play is is a great way to kind of pull myself out of, of this academic world. Yeah, I love all those suggestions. Well, I think there's been loads of great advice in there and uh, lots of great insights. Thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing your experiences. It's been a really great discussion. I'm sure it'll be super valuable for a lot of people. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having you. us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. As always, thanks so much to all the guests who joined me today. Their details and links to things we've talked about will be on the website, thewepodcast.org. Just a note, I've decided to discontinue the dedicated email address, but you can still contact me using the form on the website and through the socials, which you can find with the handle at the underscore we underscore podcast. I'll be back soon with more great guests and hopefully less hay fever. (laughs) Take care until then. 